All right, folks, welcome to the Edge Pierce podcast. Uh, I got Dr. Charlene Reed with us today. Uh, Dr. Reed, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? Doing well. Thanks for asking. And so I'm going to read your bio. But one, one of the things that stuck out for me in terms of uh, in terms of my uh, my independent research is that you were a former track star. <laughs> uh, everybody talks about that. Um, I ran track. I'll just say that. I ran track in high school. I ran track in college. I ran track at UCLA. So that man, that's not no, that's, that's, that's not, you can't just gloss over that. Right? What? Like if you ran track at UCLA, now you had skis. Yeah, I guess I was kind of fast. Okay. All right. I ran the 400 and it's in the 200 and yeah. Yeah. I, I, I trained, I trained my, my coach was Bobby Kersey. Uh huh. Yeah, I had yeah. I have a lot I mean, of friends who are Olympians and things like that. Yeah, it was just this a former chapter in my life. Yes, I'm I'm an athlete, so that's probably why I go so hard on everything that I do. Listen, if you want to be humble, I'm okay with it. Uh, I'm a former Division One athlete too, and every time I get the opportunity to brag about it. I mean, it wasn't UCLA, but still. All right, so uh, Dr. Reed is a founder and, and chief executive officer of Excellent Charter Schools, a charter man management organization uh, with, with schools in the Bronx and in Stanford, Connecticut. So you're in, you're in two places in terms of, of the work that you do, uh, two different authorizers, two different, like, just two, yeah, two different worlds. So which world uh, gives you the, the best? In terms of like uh, allowing you to be innovative as, as a charter school leader. You mean which states? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is the more charter friendly? Oh, New Not York. New York. Yeah. No, no, New York. New York is uh, more charter friendly, of course, definitely. Mm -hmm. um, the fact that it has two um, authorizers. I'm, I'm sorry, three. It was formerly three, but now two. Um, SUNY in the state education department. Um, New York City is just a charter friendly city. Mm -hmm. So not just the fact that we're authorized by the State University of New York. We also, um, my schools are in a city that is, you know, with the help of, you know, in the past of having Bloomberg and Chancellor Klein, like uh, infrastructure was set up to where um, innovation and charter schools could thrive. Yeah, I, listen. I, I, I'm a, I'm a client. I'm a client guy. Uh, I was in Harlem when Klein, when Klein was uh, was 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 over education in the city, and I don't think he gets enough credit uh, based off of the work that he to do. So shout out to. Um. So we just had a versus battle, and I know you was pretty hyped about it. Uh, who who, who won? Uh, did Too Short win? E forty win or did California win? Too Short. Okay, California won. I guess uh -huh. we can always go to that default uh -huh. because um, it allowed, I was in heaven for three hours. Like I haven't, it brought me back to uh, growing up in Oakland and the slang and everything. Like you, you just totally forget about that um, as you get older. And so it was a good time for me to like actually listen, but of course uh -huh. too short. Yeah. It's too short yeah. from Oakland. E40's from Vallejo. So, you know, there's different, neighborhoods and different cities. So 
I'm always, I grew up the first, I think probably one of the first rappers I ever listened to was Too Short. Yeah, yeah. listen, hey, the first concert I ever went to, it was in Kirkland, Louisiana, and uh, and somebody brought Too Short down. And so that Life Is album kind of lives in my soul because, yeah, that was the album. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. so, so public charter schools, why public charter schools for you? Um, I started my career um, in Los Angeles mm -hmm. in uh, Watts. And so when I moved to New York to, to go to um, Teachers College, Columbia University, um, I went, I found a neighborhood that reminded me of Watts, so I went to Harlem. So that's where I had my first job teaching. Um, and then from there, I went to the Bronx. That's where I became an assistant principal. So my first leadership, leadership position was at PSMS 306. Mm. Anybody who knows that, it's off of Jerome and Tremont. Um, so I was, what, 26 years old? 20, yeah, 26 years old. And I was assistant principal on a large team. It's a huge school. And then I got an opportunity to go back to Harlem to work with one of my colleagues who was um, in the principal's academy. Mm. So the first class of the principal's academy and we were tasked with turning around one of the lowest performing schools in Harlem with all the support of Klein and all the new initiatives and things like that. So it was at a uh, uh, PS uh, 194. 194? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wait, what, wait, the 194? Yeah, the 194, yeah. Oh, 145th. Yeah, 144th between oh, seven sorry, and eight. By the path mark. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my I was there was before there was the path mark. Oh, what school were you at? Harlem Village. We were in the building at the same time? Maybe. <laughs> Yo, okay, so. Wait a minute, I do remember a tall black guy. <laughs> um, so, okay, so, okay, so this is a good point. So I was downstairs mm -hmm. and it was the first time I experienced a charter school and we kind of got dogged out. Uh-huh. Um, came in, took everything off the top floor mm -hmm. and threw everything on the other uh, floors, like literally piled up. I wish I could find those pictures. You don't and need so to it, it was it was <laughs> so I had a, a bunch of school aides, um, a bunch of parent volunteers, and we cleaned up the floors and had to figure out where to put all the furniture and all the books that had been thrown on the second and third floor. It was it was a stressful experience, but yeah, I was there. Mm. I was uh, so, I was so the assistant so principal and then became the principal of that building. Yeah. Yeah. So the co-location mm -hmm. piece, right? Mm -hmm. Right. We don't want to talk about that enough because you know co-location is, is 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 a very intricate type conversation because you got kids that are coming from the same neighborhoods mm -hmm. that are in two totally different worlds when they walk into the building. Mm -hmm. So like, what's your thoughts on co-location? Should it happen or, or no? I mean, I've experienced myself. Of course, my first experience was the co-location at One Ninety Four Harlem Village. Um, also, my colleagues, my husband, um, it can work. Mm -hmm. um, it, it can work if the leaders are grounded in this, if they have the same vision for the neighborhood and the community. If they're right. treating it as if the kids have been shipped in from some other place 
and they decided that the place they wanted to go to school was right there in, in the hood, if they, which we know is not the, you know, that doesn't happen. You know, I had kids, you know, who were coming from, what, what are the houses there? Are those the Hamilton houses? It is. Um, yep. the, so the Hamilton houses that were coming to 194, but then kids who had, who had gone to 194, who are now going to Harlem Village Academy, mm-hmm. even family members where it was split. And I didn't see a difference. So I was like, go upstairs to your school. If you, you know, I'm still going to be on you when you're walking up the steps. And so I think if the leaders work together, because I did forge um, a partnership with, um, at the time it was a dean of students, it was a woman. Um, I can't remember her name. Um, May have been Rolandia, Rolandria Justice. Might have been Miss Justice at the time. And when she came in, she was the first person who spoke to me and I said, look, these are the same kids. I, I could care less yeah. if they mm-hmm. go to your school or my school. Mm-hmm. We, gonna, we, gotta, we gotta manage the physical plant. We gotta manage this building. Mm-hmm. So we gotta work together. So. I see middle school kids upstairs doing something. I'm going to be on them. You see my kids downstairs doing something. Same thing on the playground. Um, it, it, it worked out. It actually worked out. Um, the way we uh, we had like uh, building cabinet meetings. Mm, yeah, we, we I remember made sure that the, the um, we worked out the schedule with sharing the cafeteria with the playground. And if, if it's not a contentious like situation, it can work out because we didn't have those grades in our school that were mm-hmm. upstairs. Right. So to me, it was just another school. Like a feeder school. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. It probably can be a problem if they're shared grades, yeah. which I've, I haven't experienced that. But I mean, if you did, if the leaders actually sit down and talk to each other and they say, okay, why are you doing this? Why are you here? If you're here for the same reason, you want these kids to succeed, then let's do this and let's manage this. So it can work. Right. And so that, bring, that brings me to an inter, uh, interesting conversation that I had yesterday. I had a, a, a guest on yesterday. Uh, the, she, she's actually <laughs> one of one of the, uh, she's the one that I admire from uh, the critical race theory uh, framework perspective. <laughs> right? And so <laughs> uh, we, we were talking about just like co-location. We were talking about uh, public schools versus charter school and just like how folks get into this whole narrative of this us versus them thing. Right. Mm-hmm. And so like, what are your thoughts on that? Because I'm a we, I'm a we person. What's a we person? A we person, right? we can't do us versus them. We got to think about we oh, as okay. in like, no, we this work for our students. Yeah, I mean, I think it becomes uh, us versus them because the mentality of the us and the them aren't the same. Like we're always going to be at, we're always going to fight or, or disagree if you're in this for a different reason. And so, you know, if, if it's really to like live out your mission, then it can be a we. If it's not about that, then you can't, then we don't, we're never going to agree. Like if you don't believe that the child that is sitting in your classroom is just as smart as any other kid in the world because of what you are teaching them, then we're never gonna agree, ever. Like we're never gonna be on the same page. And I don't care if it's a charter school, if it's a district school, a private school, like you have to be about the kids. And that's the leadership, those are the teachers, that's your front office staff, that's your cafeteria staff, that has to be the facilities. If 
anybody who's working in that building and working for those kids, their, their, their paycheck is being paid because that kid is walking into that building every day, then you have to be on the same page. And that page is educate that child, make sure that they are nurtured, that they are loved, that you're building up self-esteem and confidence so they can go on to the next stage and become successful. If you're not about that life, then it's always gonna be us versus, versus them. So I think that happens because I think some people are not about that. Mm. So then that's when it becomes divided. Like, like the situation where we were co-located, it was very clear to me that everybody upstairs from Harlem Village Academy was really about the same thing that I was about. Mm -hmm. So we never, we always got along. Like it was, it was never drama. So I think, I think the drama comes because some people really don't think that the kids that we work with deserve to be educated and taken care of like other kids. Agreed. I, you'll have no disagreement for me. So let's so so having given your experience of work working in charter schools and also your experience of working in public schools. Now you got a you got some blue ribbon schools. You got you you are doing pretty well in your network. So like mm -hmm. what what kind of collaborative uh, uh things can happen between uh your schools which are performing really well and traditional public schools that may not be performing well? Well, um, I can I can always hope on a dream. Um, I, I tried that. I had a three year partnership with the district school. Um, we 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 gave resources to the school. We trained the teachers the same way. We did a teacher exchange. Um, everything that we did at Bronx Excellence at the flagship school, we did at the district school. Um, and the kids, you know. They succeeded just like the kids, you know, down the street at Bronx Excellence. Um, the difference was the mentality and the mindset. So when I would ask the teachers from the district school why the kids perform so well, they never attributed their success to their own teaching. They said mm. that they, the kids were lucky. They said, wow. we, don't, we don't know. And I'm like, for three years, you like, you, you're using the same assessments where where we're using the same curriculum, where we're participating in the same pay structure, everything was the same except for the mindset. So at the end of the day, that's what that that experience made me say I need to open up my own schools. Cause I was like, until folks are ready to like believe in their heart that low income, poor kids or kids in the neighborhoods that we choose to work in deserve. The education that their own kids get, then we're always gonna, it's always gonna be a problem and we we won't ever be able to collaborate. Um, if you believe that a kid is bound to be uh, low achieving because they're poor and we can't change anything about them being poor at this time, then the kid is, is basically, has no chance. So then what are you going to work for every day if that's your belief system? You and know what they're going to work for. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, let's not play these games, man. <laughs> so, so my idea of, of school turnaround may look different from your idea of school turnaround. Mm -hmm. So I want to I want to pick your brain about what school turnaround looks like for you. And then also I want to say that you know, anybody that comes in and does a school turnaround, bringing a school that was uh, traditionally fail in school. 
to a school that is now succeeding, I think that person is an expert in school turnaround. So I'm looking at you as the expert. Um, what's your idea of school turnaround and, and what does it look like? What, what, what does it entail? I mean, without going into like the details of all the different aspects it takes to run a school, mm -hmm. um, I think the first thing you have to you have to set a, a culture, a school culture around success. Um, I mean, we could go back to how you started off with, oh, you ran track, you were a track star. So I'm really competitive and I don't like losing. Like I, I'm, I'm a winner, right? So <laughs> never gonna be able to take that away from me. So I know how to win. I know how to get, you know, do things to win. It requires discipline, it requires um, a way of practice and thought. And so I think I just took those skills and transferred it over to education. And when you're turning around a school, you have to want to win. You got to, and, and winning in a sense of turning around the school means the kids are succeeding. That's the win. And um, if you can get, uh, if you can get people around you or within the organization that have that same belief system, then all the technical logistical stuff can be taken care of, you know, fix the schedule, get the right curriculum, let's make sure we have enough teaching hours, like all the kind of stuff you can check off. That That's easy. System-wide stuff you can fix. What you can't fix is somebody that has a, um, a broken belief system. So you just can't have those people, you can't have those people around you. You can't have them around the kids because they don't want to see the kids actually do better than what they did. And as horrible as it sounds, I mean, like we know that that's rampant in uh, in this business, uh, you know, and it's, it's, it's very unfortunate that, you know, that we have to deal with those things and that kids most of all have to deal with those things. So that's unfortunate. But I want to I want to go back to, to what you were saying about, you know, just the, the the upward progression of being a systems leader. So, like, how important is it for you to have been a teacher, have been an AP, have been a principal? And then like go into the role that you had in terms of like how teachers uh, and other educators look at that. <laughs> Let's just look at, yeah. This is a setup question because I know to add something afterwards. You know um, I am. <laughs> um, of course, I think it's important um, because, you know, as a teacher, I understood students and I understood the classrooms, right? Um, and then when I became an assistant principal, I could help guide the teachers on how to be like a better teacher in the classroom because I understood what it was to, you know, what it was like to be a teacher um, and to be a successful teacher, not just someone who taught, like my kids were succeeding, um, high achievement levels. Um, and then, you know, as you grow to become a principal, you know, like to be able to guide those those teachers. And then when I became an executive director, it's like, okay, I have many teachers and then you open up more schools. And so, um, you know, I, I, of course it's important to have experience because people wanna be led by someone who, they've, who they feel like has done the job before. Um, that's how you guide people, that's how you coach them. It's not theoretical, it's based on actual practice. I think it's super important. Um, can some of those levels be skipped over? Possibly. 
<laughs> I'm trying to kill your next question, but okay. Listen, uh, so we, we've we've seen folks that are able to you know jump across those uh, those steps of progression. Uh, mm -hmm. What are your thoughts? Because you know those are those are some of the schools that you know people come in two years later they uh, see them they CFOs CEOs or whatever making two hundred grand I'm not in anybody's pocket, but mm -hmm. uh, making a lot of bread after only you know being there for a couple of years. What's your thoughts? Ooh, okay, this could go many ways. Um, so I'm gonna take the many medium safe route. Um. Some people can go in those roles and they have good teams. So they actually might be a good leader of people that are competent and that know how to do their jobs. And so sometimes they're learning as they are in the job. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if all those opportunities are afforded to people who look like me or look like you, but that's a whole nother story. Um, I feel like everything that I've earned in this organization, it's because I had the experience before to say, here are my receipts. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and yes, I've watched some people have nothing, no evidence of anything actually progress. Um, so yeah, I mean, those are those systems and those schools and those organizations that go ahead and hire those folks. I ain't got nothing to do with me. But I feel like, yeah, it's. I'll stop there. I, I appreciate your honesty. And so for those of you that are listening, that if you hear a, a, a echo from me, it's because I'm doing a workaround. It's not, it's not my audio. I'm not going to point any fingers at anybody else. But I'm going to try to let Dr. Reed do most of the talking because I know the echo is coming from me. So I'm just kind of posing the questions. But it's not my echo. Not on me. All right. So... <laughs> So, so COVID, COVID leadership. Oh, uh, what does what does that look like? So, COVID leadership is tough. So, it requires you to have um, uh, stamina. Um, your decision making has to be quick and and thoughtful and intentional. Um, you know, this is one of the first times in my career where being, you have to be very careful because um, one decision impacts a bunch of different stakeholders. You know, so you close a school, the parents are gonna have, you know, like it's just, it's so many, you, you have to take in consideration all the stakeholders with every decision that you make um, because it's a safety. You know, most of the time it's a safety issue. And so um, it requires also some tenacity because it's you, you have almost no control. Um, you are leading in like chaos. You have to be flexible. You have to read a lot. So if you're not a reader, it's probably not the place for you because the, the, the guidelines, the laws change on a daily basis. You gotta read your emails, you gotta read these documents, you gotta consult with lawyers um, because the decision that you make can have, it's gonna have an impact. You just try to figure out what type of impact. Is this gonna be a positive impact, a negative impact? 
Like, how can I make sure that everybody is okay with this decision? Board members, funders, parents, students, teachers, leaders, um, operation staff, um, because it, everyone's connected. Um, yeah, so COVID leadership actually exposed, it, it probably exposed people on being very poor leaders. Absolutely, 100%. I'm, I'm not going to go there, but I've seen some things in my own organization that definitely exposed some 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 uh, some areas of growth. Um, so what, what were some of the things that you had in place prior to COVID that kind of made your schools uh, be able to do a, a smooth transition into? Oh, I mean, I always say this. We're able to get so much done because we had we had a positive uh, school culture. Like our school culture is, 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 is really tight. Um, our leaders know their, know their scholars, they know their parents, they know the families. Um, so we were able to transition easily. Like I was surprised. I, I had some of my colleagues had shared that they were unable to get kids to log on. And I was like, how, how, like, where are they? Do you know where the kids are and things like that? So, I mean, we just, I mean, our families would never just not show up. Our kids would never not show up to, to like parents are gonna let us know because we, it's a partnership, we're a family. So the fact that we were a family before, if you're, if you're a strong family right now, before COVID, then when COVID hit, you know, you might've had your little adjustments and maybe some misunderstandings and some arguments, but there was, you didn't get a divorce. You just had an argument, right? Like you just had to argue and, but your family, your bond, your foundation is so strong that, I mean, we, I mean, I mean, that's what it was. I mean, I'm not even going to talk about, the, like I said, the, 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 um, it's, it's the soft nuance things that people don't think are important. Um, when we started our grocery store initiative, I was able to, uh, with our uh, family and community engagement team, established the accounts at the grocery stores because we called parents. We called folks in the community and we said, look, if we get a cold call from the school saying set up a credit account, that's not gonna work. You gotta go there and, and vouch for the school. And that's how we were able to establish uh, the accounts with all the grocery stores to feed our families because we had already had a family base. So did you guys run into any tech issues that you had to work out? Um, you mean just like from them, from them from uh kids being able to log on? Yeah, yeah, we had uh, like every the same the same stuff. We had that we had back orders of laptops, the Chromebooks not coming in on time. Um we had to come up with like your fancy workaround because my mic isn't working. We had to, you know, come up with <laughs> <laughs> workarounds, um, but we made adjustments. So yeah. if a kid yeah. doesn't have its la their laptop yet, then you're not going to hold them accountable to an assignment that they need their laptop for. Mm -hmm. You know, so um, yeah, we had all the same kind of, I guess, supply chain issues that that folks had. So uh, I want to take a shot at Google real quick because uh, I don't know if you because like you know we had to do some last minute scrambling uh, around September. August, September, and the way that those Chromebook prices shot up, 
Like you mm-hmm. could for every three Chromebooks that you bought then, you could buy five or six now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we 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 ordered. We did our orders in June. Mm-hmm. So we had the regular Chromebook prices, but you know, our stuff didn't come until August, September. I even think we got some orders in October. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it was def- definitely an adjustment and definitely, you know, it, mm-hmm. it required, I want to say it required folks that, that thought quick on their feet, right? Like you had to be like a quick thinker in order to mm-hmm. like get some, get through some, some of the stuff or not. Like how, how are you, uh, how do you, how are you managing your leaders in terms of your expectations for them uh, regarding their COVID leadership? Um, so along with um, our uh, chief of schools, um, Dr. Deniston Reed, um, he, he manages the leaders. Um, I mean, I think it's more about uh, the one thing that our leaders crave and need to have at all time is uh, transparency and communication. Um, I do my best along with the charter management team to keep them in the loop of everything. Um, Any decision that's being made, um, taking in their thoughts around certain things, uh, certain protocols and practices. Um, But I think more importantly, those uh, weekly check-ins with them and, and trying our best to model that virtually. Um, being a support for them and also trusting that when they're on the ground managing their schools, that they're doing the best that they can. Um, I mean, that's all I can ask yeah. of them to do during this Listen, time. That, 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 that level of trust uh, probably mm-hmm. should have been built pre-COVID. Um, mm-hmm. but it's so essential to, to, to run in the day-to-day at this point because if you have people in place that you can't trust, then you're doing your job and you're doing their job at the mm-hmm. same time. And, and then mm-hmm. that can be cumbersome in terms of like being a systems leader. So what kind of things did you have in place with your leaders or what, what kind of things did, things did y'all have in place with your leaders prior to COVID that made it a, a smooth transition for your schools? Yeah, if any of them are on right now, they'd probably be like, I don't know if it was a smooth transition, but... Um... <laughs> I mean, we, we have a kind of relationship where we're we're constant we're in constant communication. We talk all the time, and maybe because we're not as large as other, um, you know, like we're not as large as other networks. Like we have nine schools, but mm-hmm. a lot of the leaders they all know each other. We we've um, a lot of the leaders were former teachers mm-hmm. that worked in the organization. Um, everyone is connected in some way. And so they all are part of a family too. They have their own group. They call themselves the tribe. Um, <laughs> you know, it's probably the space where they talk smack about me and, and oh my God, I can't take her. She's too much. But, um, I think, I think we just all support each other. Like, I, I, I mean, and even when it's the good, the bad and the ugly, like I'm not, I'll, they know I'm direct. I'll say when I'm upset about something or if I disagree. Um, but 
at the end of the day, it is a conversation. And I think they feel free to pick up the phone and make that call, send the text, do the email, because ultimately it's about the kids. Right. Like they, they all know that I'm going to fight for children and that I have enlisted them to join the fight. If we're fighting, then the kids are not getting what they need. And so somebody is gonna have to tap out and it ain't gonna be me. <laughs> the tap out. <laughs> so <clears throat> your teachers, man, and like, I feel like, um, you know, we have our school leaders at, at, at my school have uh, really good relationships with, with, with the teachers. Um, mm -hmm. And that's just crucial to getting this work done. Uh, what, what kind of relationships do, do your leaders have with, with, with the teachers? And um, does their transparent leadership kind of carry over to how teachers are teaching in the classroom? Yeah, I mean, my, they have great relationships. It does carry over. Um, we have what we call warm strict. So mm. we're kind of we're warm leaders, but we still have standards mm. and high expectations. And so they have great relationships with their with their staff. Um, so I wasn't sure. I wasn't quite sure if this was because of COVID, but our retention rate for our teachers was um, staff was about ninety five percent. Is it usually so, that way? Depending on the year and what's going on and things going on, we're we're probably always no uh, eighty five to ninety percent. Yeah, the standard so, so, charter school standard about eighty percent. Um, yeah, so we're we're always above that. But I found this year, especially when I saw a bunch of my colleagues switching from one organization to the next, and people were taking on jobs, we didn't lose a lot of people, like not at all. Like it was it was surprising, and I think number one because folks are like, where am I going to get a job at? And it's COVID, and I'm not trying to do this. But I think more importantly. Um, the teachers connected, like they they bonded with their leaders and bonded with the kids and the families. Hmm. And they, they, you know, this is a great relationship. I mean, I talk to a lot of the teachers. Um, people feel, I, I think they feel comfortable. I'll say they feel comfortable. <laughs> um, they emailing don't. Me they don't. <laughs> <laughs> Trust me, they don't. They put on, they put that face on. They feel like, it's like it's like going into the Mac store. <laughs> <laughs> they don't really feel comfortable. Um, but so let's 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 stay in that for a second because like I'm from the school of thought to where I don't think turnover is that bad. I mean, like given COVID, like you know, I, I'm giving grace, but like in, in a year that you have, like, you know, is if it's an anomaly turnover year, I feel like some good thing could come out of that. Oh yeah. It depends on who's doing the turning over. Right. If I'm turning over, then of course I'm gonna think it's great because it's being led by me. Um, if if you get a mass exodus from a particular school, then that's definitely a red flag. Um, I mean, we do exit interviews with mm -hmm. our staff, and ninety percent of them actually participate in the exit interview. That's and so high. I think that, yeah, yeah, I think um, we get great feedback. Um, I would say most, most staff who leave, it's because they are, you know, life changes. Um, that category of I'm just completely dissatisfied, at least through their own words, we typically don't hear that, at least in the exit interviews. 
Yeah, but then you, know, you also got to look at the validity of, 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 of the exit interviews, too, you know, because, like, you know, you got to look at the, the folks that are talking because, you know, I, I genuinely want to help the organization. And then you got to look at the folks that leave, like, pissed off. And if they leave pissed off, then they're going to, yeah. Oh, we, we get that, too. Oh, no, no, we get that, too. We get the, we get folks requesting the exit interview. <laughs> I want the exit interview. So... We know we're ready to get a mouthful when they request the exit interview. Um, yeah, so yeah, you take it in. But again, it's all feedback, right? Like you can go back and triangulate that information and you can say, gosh, was this person really disgruntled or do they really have a legitimate reason of concern? Mm -hmm. um, so you're looking at observation notes, you're talking to the leader, you know, to make sure that, okay, this, matches the data that I have. It's always concerning when you get someone in an exit interview that surprises you and shares things that you shares details of a school and you're like, ooh, I didn't know that was going on. You know, so um that's rare that we've had that, but it does happen occasionally. Yeah. So what kind of innovative things have you have you have you seen in the past nine months that you're like, wow, uh COVID provided us a real opportunity to be innovative and uh and i think we're going to stay here and even when things get back to the old normal which is never going to be the new normal uh we're going to continue these practices mm -hmm. so i have a list <laughs> the, things that, the things that stand out to me are um like the you don't well i guess the teachers would probably disagree with this but like the Okay, I'll put that on another list. I won't talk about that. I'll talk about the kids who don't normally participate. Yes. And so so when you're in a classroom setting, sometimes participation is based on teacher relationships. Relationships, yeah. bias. Yeah. I'm just gonna keep picking on the same kids or you know, the kids who raise their hand the most and the squeaky well, wheel well, and stuff like that. But in, in their defense, right? You know, I remember when I was teaching uh, and I was trying to get through a, a lesson, especially an observation. <laughs> hey, <laughs> hey, we, we have that talk prior to like, hey, listen, I'm going to come to you. <laughs> we got to get each other through this. Hey, look, you can go back to being quiet after, but I'm coming to you. <laughs> I mean, yes. I mean, I, I've done a, a ton of observations in my leadership career, and you kind of know which kids certain teachers are going to call on, um, which kids are not going to call on. And the fact that, I mean, it's kind of archaic that the knowledge of or, or, or the appraisal of a kid's understanding of something is limited to them raising their hand and, and telling you the answer. It's just a very poor way of assessing knowledge. But um I think now kids who normally don't talk, they write in the chat. Mm. Yes. And yeah. so the chat has become a, a kind of equalizer mm. for the kids who might be extroverts. Yes. Wait, 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 wait do you see them start uh, requesting the breakout? Yeah, 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 <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so I think that's awesome. What I also like is that I feel like the teacher's lessons are really targeted yes. because they're doing PowerPoint slides 
and they have a certain amount of time to teach it and they got to go like i think i think te- the instruction is is sharper mm-hmm. um uh what else so i definitely know we can that teacher instruction piece definitely can include that um uh, um i feel like it's made scheduling easier to some degree we had to do a lot of work with scheduling i don't know about that scheduling is hard because you're trying to figure out like how to you don't want kids to be on a computer all day right and how to break so it up what's the, what's, what's the healthy balance because I, I know you read a lot i'm doing a different kind of reading right now which you know about um <laughs> what <laughs> what um what what is the literature saying about about uh screen time how much time a kid should be uh on the screen i mean everything that i've read is kind of all over the place i'm probably more about kids not being on the screen as much um when we put our schedule together we were trying to figure out okay how do we get subjects like we did a lot of consolidating mm-hmm. so like our social studies and writing is is integrated now um in our middle school the we're, we're still working on it we haven't gotten it together yet but we're creating humanities mm, so okay. consolidating the english and the history class mm-hmm. um now i've seen i've seen it work when it's implemented the fidelity when teachers are bought in so like mm-hmm. teachers have to be a part of the conversation in order for it to work really well i've mm-hmm. also seen it be forced on teachers and mm-hmm. i've seen people have to walk away from it after a year of not getting the results that they thought that they should have gotten. Yeah. I mean, that's why, like I said, our middle school is not quite there yet. And that's why I'm putting together a task force with the teachers Uh and some individuals to try to figure out like how to really marry this because when it's done correctly, it's like, it's, it's, it's great. So I just want to make sure, and that's something, that we are going to take into after COVID, um, kind of like the inter- integration of particular subjects. Um, I've also um, witnessed, which was already something that was already part of our school system, was uh, the team teaching. Mm. The team teaching is a little different. Um, we have some lead teachers uh, teaching the mini lesson, and it's being uh, on a, uh, they have like the webcams. And then it's uh, live streamed in other classes. And then the teacher that's working with a particular group or cohort can, you know, that one teacher teaches the mini lesson and then the other ones kind of follow up with independent work. So there's a different type of team teaching that's going on that I think we can continue to do. Um, Let's see what else. Oh, I I think the big thing was we were able to, like like I said, from eight, 8.30 to 12, I think that's a lot for kids. And so our school, our instruction, our morning instruction ends at the middle school at around 11.15. And then they come back on at one Um, o'clock. At the the elementary school, it starts at around 8.30 and it ends at 12. And then they come back on at one o'clock. And during the one to three o'clock block, that's when we have club excellence. Mm -hmm. And then that's where we have all the specials being taught at that time. Mm. Um, I was able to bring in, I think over 26 guest teaching artists. So so walk, walk me through the, 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 the process of this, because this sounds like the innovation that 
you wouldn't mm -hmm. necessarily see in a traditional mm -hmm. public school. So talk to yeah. me about that. Yeah. So as we all know, Broadway is closed. A lot of uh, artists and performers are out of work. And so um, we partnered with um, an organization, arts organization, and we have 26 uh, professional artists working with our scholars on uh, four-week cycles um, to deliver virtual um, arts programming to the kids. Wow. Um, and I mean, you have, we have vocal class, we have tap, we have theater, spoken word, uh, music, dance, different types of dance. Um, I even got American Sign Language in a few schools. Oh, wow. um, we're, we're, we're taking on things that we never would have taken on before because they just weren't part of the regular program. But now because of that, that end of the day block from one to three, I wanted it to kind of be a different kind of fun, engaging block. Not that eight to 12 isn't engaging, but so that the kids could experience something different. And not only do we have the professional artists, we also have our, um, our in-school teaching uh, teachers who are also part of that. So like children are making beats and making music. That never happened in our music class before. <laughs> um, so, so the teachers are coming up with different ways to be innovative with the computer. And what can I do virtually with the kids? Yeah. And so you could do that virtually. Oh, you're definitely going to do that when school opens up. Those kids are going to be making music and playing the instruments and doing the things that they were doing virtually. So I, I think um, making it more of an integrated schooling experience. Not that it wasn't before, but now it, 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 it's, it's different because we're bringing in a different resource into the into the school. That's dope. Shout out to my music teachers. We out here making beats. Uh, we, we're trying to find the, 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 the new Swiss beats at, uh, at Riverhead Charter School. So shout out to my music teachers because we're doing that. So, uh, yeah. So we got a question from, from the audience. Uh, this is the first question I'm taking. And it's from uh, L. Michelle Johnson. She's one of the patrons on our Eight Black Hands podcast. But she follows okay. all the stuff that we do. She's a dope educator. She says uh, she wants to hear leaders talk about curriculum. Are you using a knowledge-rich curriculum? Uh, what about teaching reading? Well, I need a little bit more explanation on the knowledge-rich curriculum, but teaching reading. Are we teaching reading right now in the schools? Yes. Um, I'm an avid believer of uh, reading instruction. So I was pretty happy when um, Lucy Calkins came out and said that. That was some bullshit. <laughs> what, what, what do you want me to do? <laughs> hey, I wrote a blog about it, so you know, I, I, my energy was real high with regards to that. But but but, but the um, thing that we the thing that we're never gonna get to right is that the amount of schools that didn't really have a high uh, budget allotment for reading curriculum that went mm -hmm. and spent their lives on uh, on on that curriculum, and then mm -hmm. those kids are are not reading. Those kids are on a trajectory to go to prison through the school of prison pipeline. And so even mm -hmm. though you can come out and say, oh, I apologize, it's not research based, it's not based off of science or whatever. What about those lives you ruined? I mean, so coming from Los Angeles, I was trained by old school teachers um, <laughs> who taught me straight out of grad school. This is how you teach a child how to read. This is the science of teaching reading. And it was a 
very, to me, simple formula for how to get a child to learn how to read. And so when I became a teacher, that's what I did. When I became an assistant principal, principal, I passed on that knowledge to my staff and found programs that would address at the early uh, stages of, of reading development, uh, the phonics, phonemic awareness, vocabulary development, spelling. Um, I, I do like a, 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 a writer's workshop type of writing program because I love the craft of writing. So you marry that together and you have like a really robust uh, reading program that mm -hmm. grows with each grade level, the level of rigor. Um, you know, by second grade, my, my, my students in the schools, they're reading novels, mm -hmm. they're reading chapter books, um, but we're still driving home vocabulary development, understanding certain reading skills, understanding the themes, the standards around there. Um, it, it, it's definitely a science. Like there are certain sight words you need to know to be able to go to the next level of reading. There are certain vocabulary words. There are certain things you need to know to know how to be able to comprehend. And so there are certain words you need to know how to spell. The, the difference between decoding and encoding, the difference between uh, a sound versus print, like letters and how you blend those together. Like I'm, I'm a reading junkie. So I just believe that that's what you have to do to build the foundation. Cause you don't have that. Then you can't read history. You can't do science. You can't do math. You definitely so can't do math. <laughs> you definitely exactly. can't read. You can't, yeah. So, I mean, if you, yeah. so let me ask you this question. Cause I've, I've been asking guests that come on my show this question. So mm -hmm. you're in a system. Uh, it could be, LA union free, it could be Oakland union free, it could be whatever system you're in, right? Mm -hmm. A kid goes through 12 years of being, in, I'm sorry, 13 years of being in that system, right? Mm -hmm. And at the end of those 13 years, the kid can't read. Who's to blame? So think about this, because I don't want you to get yourself in. I don't want you to get yourself in the situation, but I know who's to blame on my on my end. I'm <laughs> I'm not blaming parents, is what I'm gonna say. Okay, so so first we have to define read, right? Being able so to fill they, out, being able to fill out a job application once they get twelfth grade, they can't fill out a job application. Okay, so that means the the person is fully like illiterate. Yes. Okay. Do schools still push out kids? Like, do kids still graduate Absolutely. being like fully illiterate? You, if you look at any of the, any any data that, and you see the spikes in, mm -hmm. uh, you see the spikes in graduation rates, then you know if you if you went from one year, uh, you know you you had sixty percent of your kids graduating, and then the next year you got eighty five percent kids kids graduating. Those kids didn't just get smart in one year. Okay. So here you go. Here's my answer. <sighs> it's equally responsible are the parents and the teachers mm. and, and, and the educators. And this is why I say it. Um, even even if, a, so, so you might have some parents who aren't educated, who might also be illiterate, right? So that that's a whole that's a whew, that's a real layered problem. Mm -hmm. But in most cases, I think parents they're not educators, they're not the professionals, right? So everyone expects the school to to do their job. 
Um, so then I go to the school and I say, you know what? It's our job to make sure the kids read. Like you are collecting a check. Like you are, this is your job. This is your career. So it's your job to make sure the scholars know how to read. And with every year, you can't just keep kicking the can down the road. So if, if I'm the second grade teacher, I can't blame the first grade teacher. So I got to do everything I can as a second grade teacher. And then I got to make sure when they go to the third grade that I'm saying, look, this is what they know. And this is what I need for you to work on for them to continue to grow. Mm-hmm. And every grade has to take on that responsibility. If you do that, then you're going to fill in the gaps. If a kid makes it all the way from kindergarten to 12th grade and they can't read, the parent also knows that their child can't read too. Not if they can't read themselves. Well, they got something in the house and if both people can't read it, then they all know that they can't read. I mean, I'm just, it's at, at some point as a parent, and I'm saying this as a parent, and I don't know what it's like to be an illiterate parent, so I can't speak from that point of view. But if you feel like your kid is not getting what they deserve in a school system, then you need to advocate and fight. But some, but the pushback to that is that some folks don't know what they're advocating for. And so then those frustrations build. And then when they come to the school, they go to hell off, right? And mm-hmm. it's not them going off based off of them being angry with a particular person. They're angry with the system because at the end of the day, their child can't read, right? Mm-hmm. And, and they don't want their child. Like I, I, I go into it with the belief that every parent wants better for their child than what they had, right? So I feel like having that fundamental belief gets mm-hmm. me through gets me through a, 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 some tough times, right? So like mm-hmm. when a parent comes to my school and goes the hell off, I need to find out why that parent is going off. And like you said before, it could be layers of why those parents are unhappy. And it could also mean that they had some really uh, tough challenges when they were in schools themselves. Oh, man, you bringing me back to, um, I guess I've been in the charter world uh, a little too long or being at excellence for over 14, 14 years now. Um, yeah, I mean, that is a problem when parents don't feel like they have the agency to advocate. They don't know what they're advocating for. And then they're stuck with the with the only option, which is maybe that neighborhood school. Um, but then on the flip side, you know, I go by my experience. Uh, my first from kindergarten to fifth grade, I went to Oakland Public Schools. And at some point, my mom was like, okay, this is the 80s. This is too much stuff going on in Oakland. This is the crack era. We got to move. And not everybody um, could do that. Not everybody can move to Scarsdale. Yes, I know. I know. I know. I'm not saying, you know, like we went from Oakland to a place called Union City. It probably ain't the equivalent to New York City to Scarsdale. But it's, it's, it was, you know, it probably was like going from New York City to maybe. Yonkers, but at some point we got to hold the system accountable. So I'm not saying don't hold them accountable. I mean, that's the reason that I'm in the sector that I'm in. Like I, I feel like I can hold people accountable with working with other people's kids mm-hmm. um, and serve as an agent for the families who 
can't speak for themselves or just afraid or don't know what to say or don't know how to begin to have a conversation. But every if everyone everyone knows deep down in their heart that kid parents want their kids to do well. Like you just know that. Mm-hmm. So it's like you can't really blame the parents, but you you know, like they, they send their kids to us. They're, the kids are actually with us more than they are with their parents. So we do have to, okay, so maybe I won't say half and half. Maybe I'll say 70% on the educator and 30% on on the family. Because I do think that, that families need to feel empowered to speak up. And I do realize and agree that there are systems that suppress their ability to be able to speak up. Um, but I think if you sign up to be a teacher, a principal, any type of leader in the education system, you're signing a contract to say, I'm doing this work for these children. And that no, like even for a kid in 2020 to graduate and still be illiterate is like a crime. Like, I almost feel like, where where are those kids coming from? Those, those, okay, that's. Listen, you gotta get in, 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 in your situation. <laughs> so uh, Spin Move, who, I, who I'm thinking is, is, is somewhere uh, adjacent to New York City. Uh, he says, um, this is why I love that my school follows F&P standards for reading. Uh, to me, it helps uh, uh, teacher tailor the day's reading towards uh, the level that that child is reading. And so, you know, you, you're, you're seeing um, a lot of conversation on the Twitter about uh f and p and how f and p doesn't work and, and how it's not research based and like all these other things but here's what i can say about f and p f and p at least gives me a benchmark of where my kid is at so that i know what kind of supplemental things that i need to do in order to get them where i want them to be and so i think that you know it's good to have those benchmarks which then leads me into my next question is what's your thoughts on standardized testing because you know you got some folks. Uh, let's see, about a good. I want to say statistically about eighty-five percent of folks right now that are just totally against standardized testing because it uh, it forces them to be accountable for those kids' test scores. So, what's your thoughts? Okay, so I don't usually get in these arguments because I feel like people just kind of don't know what they're talking about. So, like with F and P. Like FMP is used as a benchmark. If you really understand reading instruction, like you really know it, like you know reading instruction almost like a reading specialist would, or like those kind of, you know, the the teacher that is taught for fifteen or twenty years. We got to clarify, reading specialist, right? And I'm glad you, okay. you just did that, right? You said that yeah. somebody has been teaching reading for about fifteen to twenty years because a lot of these colleges will push you out with a a reading specialist certification. And you haven't taught one grade of reading. No, no, no. These are the people that can actually, you send them a kid and they give some assessments and they can read with the kid and they'll come back and say, here, here's the diagnosis. This is what this kid doesn't know. This is what I'm going to work with them. I don't hardly see those folks anymore. I definitely don't see them in the charter school world. They're dinosaurs. Um, They're they're out consulting for uh, just college. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean... If you know anything about reading instruction, you understand F and P. F and P just serves as a benchmark so that you can understand at what level the kids are at. But what I always say to folks, and even in our organization, you can assess a kid and they could be a level L. They're also a level M. 
-hmm. They're also a level in. Mm -hmm. So reading level is not necessarily this like static number. Mm -hmm. There's like a range. So like an early reader is between levels A and D. You know, and then the next level of a reader is going from E to like H, mm -hmm. I. And then the next one is like J. There's this funky area, like usually when they're in the first grade, where they can like jump because mm -hmm. they figure out, oh my God, I can put all these words together and the sentences and they actually make meaning. And now I understand what the story is about. And then they get the aha moment. And then you keep moving, but the whole point of to get to to give to to administer the F and P, and you're like, okay, this kid can fluently read this level of text without any mistakes, without any support, means that they're on this level. It doesn't necessarily mean they're on that level. It just means that they can read that independently with no mistakes. Right. Their level, right. they can they you can give them. Uh, 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 let's see, if they're an M, you could give them an O or a P book. They might be able to read it and decode it and they might understand most of it, but they're just gonna need your support to kind of get through it. Absolutely. So all it does is basically set the, 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 the standard for where am I gonna begin to teach this child and then what things can they read on their own? What things can they read independently? Um, in our organization, when we do guided reading, we do guided reading two reading levels above their independent reading level. Absolutely. I, I, I prefer one, but I could see where you're going with two. Yeah, that's, you know, that's how you get blue ribbons and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, we try to win too. But listen, hey, sometimes you got to, sometimes you got to be the tortoise. You got to let y'all go, let y'all rabbits go out and run fast. And then <laughs> when y'all taper off at the end, we just come on right on by. Right. So I get it. But so so standardized testing and we'll we'll end here. Yeah, I'll let you go so yeah, standardized oh. testing. Um I think it's important because like you said, it holds people accountable. Unfortunately, we're in a world where if things aren't tested, they don't get taught. Mm. Um I am fortunate enough to have started teaching when there wasn't standardized testing. And um, my colleagues, we all kind of just did what we wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And then somewhere around 2000, 2001, it came in and, you know, I think there's no child left behind. And it was just like, you have left these child children behind doing what you want to do. So now we're going to tell you what you need to do. And in doing that, these are the standards. And this is what kids will be tested on. And this is how we're going to determine that they're proficient and that you're doing your job. So yes, I think it's more about educators feeling like, you know, oh, I'm teaching to the test or I'm doing this. No, you're, the test actually is a, is a reflection of, or, you know, of, 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 you know, what the content should be for that grade level. And then you're going to stay on top of that. I think if we get rid of standardized testing, I think some, some kids are going to lose. Most kids, especially the kids that look like us, are, are absolutely going to lose. So mm -hmm. yeah, that's yeah, yeah, I get it. Um, so uh, I'm getting all these shows out of the way because I know you know for the next couple of months I'm gonna be super busy. Uh, thank you with that, with with, with aiding to my to my busyness. I appreciate you for that. 
uh, third reader. Uh, so clo <laughs> <laughs> closing thoughts. You gotta, you gotta tell people because that sounds so covert. And, I nah, mean, it, it don't sound right. You said it, third it, reader. So there's a couple okay. people. There's a couple people on here that 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 know what third reader is. We got some doctors up in here or whatever. So for those of okay. you that don't know, let me spell it out because I don't want any people to be thinking covert things or whatever. Uh, <laughs> when I call Doctor Reed my third reader, uh, she is the third. Re uh, she is the third reader on, on my dissertation committee. Um, her and, and my dissertation chair are like really close. And so, yeah, man, it's like this energy that that I feel from, from her, and 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 so I can kind of relate to your to 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 the people that are your administrators in terms of like your transparency because you know I see some of this feedback and I'm like, damn, it was that bad. <laughs> but I love it, and, and and I'm inspired, and and I love the. the, the Notes that you send me in terms of like just uh, keeping my eyes on the prize and not taking anything personal uh, that means a lot to me, and uh, and and I, I appreciate that and I appreciate all the work that you do. So rolling into your final thoughts, and so listen, so because your audio was terrible, you got to come back on the show. We gotta we, we you gotta come back once we get your audio fixed. And uh, yeah, I don't know what's wrong. I I I'm on this computer and stuff all the time. It's your what is this? What you call StreamYard? This is your platform. This is my computer don't know how to function with StreamYard, so we're gonna have to figure out something. Yeah, but we'll yeah, do, we'll I, I will come around. back. Home. We'll, do a do, we'll do a do over. We'll do a do over because there are a lot of things that we 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 need to talk about. So we yes. got this one out of the way. There's a bunch of stuff that we need to talk about. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. So so closing thoughts. I'm putting the screen on you. Mm -hmm. Closing thoughts. Um. Anyone who's out there watching this podcast, and if you work in the education field or work for or work within this sector, um, charter, private, public, whatever, university level, um, just keep your eye on the prize and make sure that you are working in the setting that is supporting you um, and that you feel comfortable in so that you could do what's right and what's best for the children that you have chosen to work for. Um, we work for these kids, and um, I think we just need to all remember that. Um, and that's it. And that's it. Doc, thank I, you for I having appreciate me. You. Uh, I love the energy. Uh, this is the easiest hour, one of the easiest hours I ever had to do because, you know, I, I feel like this is professional development for me. I come on, I get to learn from uh, mm -hmm. one of the greats, a winner. <laughs> I love it. So uh, you guys have been listening to the Edge Pierce podcast. Thank you guys for uh, for, for listening. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow, 7 p.m. Peace out.